Well, thank you, choir. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Garrett. I serve as the pastoral intern here at Nova, and yeah, it's just good to be worshiping alongside you today. Uh, so our scripture text today is going to come from Luke 19, specifically verses 28 through 44. So you can start opening your Bibles and flipping there now, or open up that Bible app. All routes are viable. Um, yeah. So I don't know about you guys, but I am somebody who is not a big fan of surprises. I really am not. Maybe some of you guys are the same. Like, small surprises are okay. Like, every once in a while, Jackie will bring some scones into the office, and that's like, woohoo! Um, but bigger surprises are just not really my deal, whether they are good or bad. I'll give you an example. I've never actually had one for myself, but the idea of a surprise birthday party for me just is not, no. I'd rather, much rather be in the know of what's going on. So when Lexi and I started dating roughly three years ago, and it was getting closer to my birthday, I, you know, pulled her aside, talked to her, and said, hey, I don't know if you have something planned. It's cool if you don't do or do not, but if you do, I'd really like to be in the know on that just because that's just what I prefer personally. And the reason that I had to tell her was because her friend group in college, every single time they got a chance, they threw a surprise party for each other. Every single time. And I'm, I'm not kidding you, must have like attended the fifth or sixth one of these things within like a month or two month span. And I'm sitting back and I'm just like, this, this just can't be a surprise anymore, right? <laughs> like at some point you just kind of, something has to click when it's like your birthday week and like every door you walk into, you're anticipating like 30 people jumping out at you. So that's not necessarily my thing. That was their thing. I don't know about you guys. But I think there are some surprises in life that we can universally agree aren't that fun. They're, they're silly little things, but like an example of one. Uh, have you guys ever taken a drink of what you thought was water, but it ends up being, yeah, exactly, it ends up being something completely different? Like, I don't know, you're not really paying attention to which glass you grab from the counter, take a drink. Eh, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's not what you want. Or how about when you're walking down a flight of stairs and you come to what you think is the last step? (laughs) So these sorts of surprises can be a little jarring. They're a little unsettling. They're okay, though. Um, So what we're going to do today, we're going to jump into our scripture text, and we're going to see Jesus proclaims himself the Messiah, but he wasn't necessarily the expected Messiah. That was probably a little bit jarring to those living in that time. So I'm going to read our text for us. You guys go ahead, follow along as well. This is Luke 19, 28 through 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anybody asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. 
As he was untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You sassy Jesus. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So those last few verses, um, we're going to get to those a little bit later. But first, we're going to focus on essentially what we celebrate today in the Christian church. As many of you guys know, today is Palm Sunday, the day where we remember and observe Essentially what we just read, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Palm Sunday kicks off what we call in the church Holy Week, where we remember Jesus' final days on earth leading up to his death on the cross. That's going to be this Friday, Good Friday, and his subsequent resurrection from the dead a week from today on Easter. But today we focus on Palm Sunday, on the triumphal entry And this goes further than just a nice little Jesus parade. There's a lot more at play here. There's a lot of symbolism and imagery at play that needs to be parsed out because Jesus is actually proclaiming up to four different things about himself by riding into Jerusalem. Just a little side note, um, since we are going to be uncovering a bit of imagery and historical uh, symbolism, your notes might be your best friend today. Um, but Jesus proclaims four different things about himself. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, how? Jesus really doesn't say that much in this passage. He kind of tells the disciples to go get a colt at one point and then puts the Pharisees in their place a little bit later. Um, but he doesn't really say that much. How is he proclaiming? In ancient Israel, it was very, very common to display how one was feeling or what they were thinking or even in the mode of teaching through their actions. An example of this is when uh, ancient Israelites would be mourning. Uh, It was very common that they would either tear their clothes, uh, pull out some of their hair, cover themselves in sackcloth or ashes. That was just a very common way to express that one was mourning. We even see this in the Old Testament prophets when their words were either not being listened to or were not understood. They would do some sort of dramatic act in the hope that that may get across to the people. An example of this is Hosea. We're actually going to be studying Hosea coming up pretty soon. But through Hosea's marriage to Gomer, 
It gives a representation of what God's relationship to Israel was like. And to be honest, we have these things in our lives as well. Like if I were to say somebody waved the white flag, we would all recognize that as an act of? Exactly. Or if I give you a thumbs up, that is a sign of approval. We have those in our in our lives as well. There's just different historical contexts that need to be parsed out a bit. So Jesus proclaims four things about himself. The first of which is Jesus declares that he is a king. Jesus declares that he is a king. And he actually does so in multiple ways throughout this story. The first of which It was very common in ancient times, not only Israel, but surrounding nations as well, um, when a king or ruler rode into a city, they would often do so on the back of an animal with a crowd around them. It was very, very common. So the crowd picks up on this. They see Jesus on the back of the colt with a crowd around him, recognize that he's important. I like to relate this as the ancient world's version of a motorcade. Like, uh, if the president was driving through Los Angeles, there would be police cars surrounding him. He would be in a very nice black town car, maybe even a small limo. And we would recognize very easily that somebody important is in that car. Same sort of thing here. So the crowd recognizes this, and they actually proclaim in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So this is, uh, they were reciting a psalm coming from Psalm 118, verse 26. It was just a very common blessing for those traveling to Jerusalem. But they insert the word king, especially for Jesus. The word king is not originally in the psalm. So the crowd realizes what's happening. They declare him as king as well. But not only that, they lay their cloaks down in front of him. And to us, that may not mean that much. But in ancient times, that was an act of respect, or rather, they were submitting to him as king. So Jesus declares that he is a king, one, by riding into the city on the back of a colt with a crowd around him. The crowd notices this, they proclaim him king, and they lay their cloaks down in front of him as an act of submission. Now, they had a very different idea of what it meant that Jesus was a king. We know him to be the ruler of all things, not just Israel or Jerusalem. But we're going to get to that a little bit later. So Jesus declares himself a king. Jesus also declares himself the Messiah, And to understand how Jesus declares himself the Messiah, we have to look specifically at what kind of animal Jesus rode in on. It says a colt, and I think in our modern context we understand that as a horse. Thank you, Indianapolis. Um, For those of you who don't know, the Indianapolis Colts are a football team. Their mascot's a horse. Um, (laughs) So we understand it as a horse, but if we read the other gospel accounts, we actually learn that this is the colt of a donkey. And that's significant, because by riding in on a donkey rather than a horse, Jesus is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, an Old Testament prophecy that was foretelling the coming Messiah. 
specifically out of Zechariah 9.9. You don't have to flip there. I'm going to read it for us. This is Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's really on the nose. Um, And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing by riding on this colt. It wasn't just by matter of happenstance that this came about. No, Jesus sent for this donkey. Jesus knew that he was fulfilling prophecy, and in doing so, he was very clearly proclaiming that he was the Messiah. And not only that, but there were a lot of people in the crowd, leaders in the synagogue, Pharisees, Sadducees, and they would have picked up on what Jesus was doing. They were very well read. They knew Old Testament scriptures, and they especially would know the Old Testament prophecies for the coming Messiah. So Jesus was not, by using these symbols, these imageries, he was not hiding the fact. He wasn't kind of just slyly slipping it in, but rather he was shouting it. He is shouting that Jesus is a king. He is shouting that I am the Messiah you have been waiting for. And the crowd would have picked up on both of these fairly easily. It's these next two points that they probably didn't understand quite as well. So first, Jesus declares himself a king. He declares himself a Messiah. The third thing he declares himself in this passage is a sacrifice. Jesus declares himself a sacrifice. If we look at verse 30 of this passage, the colt, or the donkey as we now know, that Jesus rode in on, had previously been unridden. It was never ridden. And this is significant uh, because in ancient Israel, when the Israelites would offer up sacrifices to God, It was the very best of what they had. If it was crops, it was the best crops they had. If it was livestock, it was the best livestock that they have. And what made the best livestock was that it was an unblemished animal and that it usually was not put to work at all. And we see that this donkey had never been ridden. It had never been put to work. Therefore, we should understand that as this donkey was being set aside for some sort of sacred duty, most likely that of sacrifice. And Jesus rides in on it, in, and in a way, saying, just as this donkey was meant to be a sacrifice, so too am I meant to be a sacrifice. And we know that now as him dying on the cross on the behalf of all humanity, so that all humanity may be redeemed back to him. I don't, and I'm pretty sure the crowd did not pick up on this fact. One, I'm not entirely sure if you can tell the difference between a ridden and unridden donkey. I really don't know about that. Maybe you can. Maybe you can, and I just don't know. But what I do know is the crowd was rejoicing pretty heavily for somebody that was meant to be a sacrifice. And I don't think they really picked up on that. So Jesus declares himself a king. Jesus declares himself the Messiah and a sacrifice. And finally, Jesus declares that he is on a mission of 
peace. On a mission of peace. We now know that when kings or rulers would enter a city or nation, they would usually do so riding some sort of animal. But what type of animal, specifically what type of animal, said a lot about the intentions they had riding into that city? For example, if a king was to ride into a city or nation on the back of a horse, that was meant to be interpreted as an act of war as an act of aggression. They were either coming into the city to declare war, they were either doing so in battle, or they were in the final act of conquering that city. But Jesus comes in on a donkey, not a horse. And kings who rode into a city on the back of a donkey, that was interpreted as an act of peace. Whatever that may be, they were not coming as aggressive. They were coming peacefully. And we know, looking back, that that act of peace, Jesus was not there to start a revolution or to start a war, but rather in an effort of peace to be that sacrifice so that all things may be redeemed back to God. So Jesus declares himself as king, as Messiah, a sacrifice, and he was on a mission of peace. The ancient Jewish people at this time, they were very much expecting a Messiah. They had a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that was foretelling a Messiah. But what they were expecting was, well, not completely, but a lot different than what Jesus was. They were expecting a king or messiah, but in the form of a political leader, a revolutionary type of figure who was going to come in, lead a revolution, and cast out the Romans who were ruling over them at that time. And in a lot of ways, oppressing them. That's not exactly what Jesus came to do. He came on a much greater mission than just to cast out the Romans. And in a lot of ways, they were wrong, but I understand how the ancient Jewish people got to this decision or this idea. You see, the ancient Jewish people had a lot of lowercase messianic figures in their history whether that's Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, Joshua conquering Jericho so that the Israelites can get to the promised land, or even Esther saving the Israelites from genocide. There were a lot of these savior-type figures, and they were all political leaders who led some sort of revolution. And if you look at the Old Testament prophecies, the scriptures for telling it, It's feasible how they got there, but nevertheless, they were wrong. The ancient Jewish people built up their own ideologies of what a Messiah was supposed to look like in their own minds. They created a mold of what the Messiah was supposed to be. And when the actual Messiah came, Jesus came, they rejected him because he did not exactly fit that mold. And I wonder sometimes in our lives we have the tendency to create these molds or these ideologies of what a Christ-like life is like. 
You see, we understand who Jesus is, especially if you are here and you're a Christian. We understand, we know, we can look back in scriptures and learn and study who Jesus was and what he came to do. We don't have to anticipate it like the ancient Jewish people. But nevertheless, it's one thing to know who Jesus is and then to apply it to your lives. Maybe you're somebody who clings to the truth of God with everything you have. You have this high standard of morality and you really have a desire that other people around you hold to that truth, hold to that morality, and that's good. I'm not here to dispel that in any way, shape, or form. You should do so. Cling to the truth of God. I just notice sometimes, maybe with these types of people, when they cling to the truth, when somebody disagrees with them, maybe you're in a small group and you and another person clash often of what the truth actually is about certain minor subjects. And that person just gets on your nerves and they just, they're grading over and over and it makes it hard to love them. Or maybe uh, you encounter somebody who just blatantly rejects God's truth altogether. And that makes you mad. That makes you, mm, it feels like they're taking something away from you and it's hard to love them. You see, Jesus absolutely clung to God's truth. He was the fulfillment of the law. But he did not stop him from loving people regardless where they stood. He sought the adulteress from Samaria. He sought out the tax collectors. In fact, even those who crucified him, he asked God to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. Jesus had an unbridled love for those around him. Or maybe you're somebody who theological integrity is so very important, and I'm, yes it is. It absolutely is. Theological integrity and seeking out um, the answers and God's truth in that manner. But maybe you have a hard time relaying what you know up here to your lives, encountering people, seeking out the broken. I remember, it's probably like two months ago, um, I was driving home from work, and for about a week, there was a homeless lady on the side of the road outside that Trader Joe's on Hawthorne, but she wasn't by herself. She had a baby with her strapped to her front, and she was begging for money because they were hungry. And I remember each day driving past them, and I was over in the left lane, and you know, they were off to the right. And I thought to myself, oh, I really hope they, that somebody helps them. But it wasn't me because, you know, I'd be slightly inconvenienced to U-turn and then pull into the parking lot and then come back out, you know, and shave like three minutes off my drive. Um, that's lame. That was really lame because I did that for a week and thought that. And I know we all have these sorts of stories about homeless people specifically. There's, it's a big epidemic in Los Angeles, and you can't stop for every single homeless person you see. But for whatever reason, this, one, this lady stuck out to me in my mind. God placed her on my and I didn't, I didn't pull over. 
Jesus sought out those in need. The sick, the lame, the lepers, the blind. It's all over the Gospels. Or maybe you're somebody who loves those around you very easily. It's easy for you to connect with people and to love on them with uh, no bias for who they are. Maybe you're a part of feeding the hungry or the Hands of Mercy team. That's wonderful. But maybe when it comes time to share your faith, you're hesitant because you don't want to you know, ruin any of the relationships you've built or you're a little scared that they may ridicule you. Matthew 28 tells us that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. And yes, your actions and love is a great place to start. But don't be scared of words. So just as the Jewish people had created these ideals of what a Messiah was supposed to look like, what Jesus was supposed to look like, they were wrong. And in some ways, maybe we create our own molds of what a Christ-like life is like, where we elevate certain aspects about Christ's characters in our lives, but push aside others. And that's not to condemn anybody by any means. We're all sinful people. We're never going to get it right. But we can do our best to get as close as we can. Do a little self-reflection, a little self-evaluation. Look into your own lives, not the lives of others. Focus on yourself. And through Christ, through God, maybe. Yeah. So, that was the triumphal entry. Let's take a look at verses 41 through 44 where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to discuss it very briefly. This is verses 41 through 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this is rather dark, especially following the triumphal entry. What Jesus is speaking of right here, he is foretelling the coming destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, so roughly 40 years after this. Essentially what happened was there was a group of Jewish people during the time of Christ called Zealots, and they were very radical revolutionaries, often made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, who just wanted the Romans out of Jerusalem so they could reclaim the holy city for the Israelites. And they succeeded in doing so. In the year 66 AD, they were able to drive the Romans out of Jerusalem. But Rome was a mighty empire, and they didn't take too kindly to that. So they came back and laid siege to Jerusalem for four years. And then ultimately in the year 70 AD, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple, and the historian Josephus uh, estimates that 
1.1 million people lost their lives. And so that's what Jesus is foretelling and weeping over. And this is a gruesome, dark event in the history of Israel and the church. But what is beautiful about this Jesus' reaction is that he comes and sees the city of Jerusalem for the first time, the city that in a few days he is going to be rejected, ridiculed, tortured, put to death in one of the worst ways imaginable, but he does not weep for himself. Rather, he weeps and mourns the suffering that's going to take place some 40 years later. And I think in this passage, we see a glimpse into the heart of God. I think sometimes when we suffer, we go through trials in our lives, it's hard to remember that God's there. Or maybe even we stop believing that God's there for a brief moment. And I think through, and it's hard, I I don't want to dispel that in any way, but I think what we see in this passage is God does not turn a blind eye to our suffering. He does not, he's not indifferent, but rather he mourns with us. God is empathetic when we suffer. He suffers right alongside us. Culminating in the ultimate suffering through Christ on the cross, But I think it's a good takeaway for us that when we suffer, when we go through hardships, God is empathetic and suffering right alongside us. And I think this is a good place to leave off as we enter into Holy Week. This is our last point for today. As we enter Holy Week, we remember the final days of Jesus. We approach the time of his betrayal on Maundy Thursday and his death on Good Friday. And it's okay to mourn that. It's okay to be sober and solemn. In fact, it's good. It's not something that comes easily to a lot of us, myself included. I really don't like those feelings at all. But it's good in a lot of ways to remember and to suffer alongside Christ a little bit. So I encourage you to do so. But we don't get to stay there. Because we get to look back and we know that Christ doesn't stay dead, but rather he is resurrected from the dead three days later on Easter. So while you are sober and mourning for Good Friday, Maundy Thursday, and all those, we do so with the knowledge that it doesn't stay like that, that we get to rejoice and we get to celebrate the greatest reason to celebrate on Easter Sunday. Christ came as a king, the ruler of all things, the ruler of all people. He was a Messiah figure. He was a Savior who was on a mission of peace that by His sacrifice on the cross... All people, all beings may be made new and be redeemed back to himself, and that is a great reason to celebrate. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, it's sometimes it's hard to remember when we suffer that you are suffering alongside us, that you mourn with us, and that even that you endured the ultimate suffering on the cross. But I pray that we would remember that you are always there, 
And God, help us to remember your sacrifice well this week. But not only that, that we may rejoice fully, we would fully understand to the best of our abilities what the resurrection means this coming Easter Sunday. And God, as we go, I pray that we would not make our own ideals of what a Christ-like life is, but that we would always be re-examining ourselves and be living into your example as fully as possible. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for this fellowship of believers. And it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you all stand for the benediction? We have refreshments, and we'll just be hanging out on the plaza afterwards, so I encourage you to stay. So will you go in the knowledge that Christ was the sacrifice for you, that through his death and resurrection, you may find new life? You are dismissed.